The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Keeper Cut Podcast. I'm Chad Young, joined as always by Pete Ball. We are very excited to be here with the podcast that talks to you about auto new leagues, keeper leagues, every league for everyone who knows that just because the MLB season ends in October doesn't mean your fantasy season ends. You're, you're not just building for this year, you're building for the long haul. You can find us on Twitter at Keep or Cut. That's cut with a K at Keep or Cut. You can also find Pete at Pete B Baseball and myself at Chad Young. Uh, and of course, you can subscribe to Keeper Cut at Apple, on Spotify, Google, basically anywhere that you're subscribing to podcasts, you can find us. If you can't find us somewhere, let us know. We will figure that out and make sure you can listen. And we're really excited to be here with the second episode. Uh, a lot of exciting stuff going on. We are recording this on Super Bowl Sunday, but it's also draft prep Sunday, at least for me and probably for other fantasy players out there. And today we're going to do a little bit of that draft prep. We're going to talk about some cases where in keeper leagues, in long-term leagues, in out-of-new leagues, you might want to reach or maybe not reach for a guy who has more long-term value than someone else. We're going to start off by going through some some general stuff, general strategy. How do we think about drafting differently in keeper leagues? How do we think about players we're going to target differently in keeper leagues? How do the settings of leagues matter? We're then going to get into some specifics. And uh, Pete, I hope you're ready for this because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set you up with some challenging questions, comparing players and put you on the spot to see who would you take? Would you wait for the lower guy? What would you do? You think you're, you're ready to handle that? Chad, it is the best time of the year is draft prep season and the draft. So I am ready for this all of the time and I can just feel it building in me. Like I, I'm, I'm born ready to answer these questions today. You're just like walking down the street being like, quick, ask me about these two players. <laughs> Any, anything you could do to get some some conversation in, huh? That's right. Yeah, I'll tell my wife all the time. Like, hey, you remember that JT Ramuda guy I talked to you, right? Like he's back with the Phillies and, and she just doesn't care. So yeah, I'm ready to I'm ready to talk this to through with someone who actually knows the deal. I've learned over the years that if I talk to my wife about Cleveland signings, the, when they rarely happen, she's like, oh, okay, good. I know you're a fan of that team. But if I talk about anything else, she's just like, let it go. Right. right. <laughs> I'm yep. glad that's good for your fantasy team. I don't actually want to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> but to get this started, Keeper Leagues, th there's a big difference. Obviously, the big difference between redraft, right? You get to keep some of these guys. And it varies league to league, how many you get to keep, what it costs to keep them. 
But in general, where do you reach? Where do you make changes to your draft strategy because a league is a keeper league? So, Chad, honestly, I'm, I'm always in the mindset I'm, I'm ready to reach at any point, right? For example, I think an early example of, of one we could have discussed that we're not going to discuss is in a keeper league, Cody Bellinger is my first baseman over Freddie Freeman. He just is. So is that considered a reach where in the first round, according to you know whatever ranking systems you're using, pretty much all of them have Freeman above Bellinger going into 2021? But in a keeper, I'm going to be taking Bellinger. So starting in the first round, I'm ready to reach. But I think it's important where we're still trying to win, right? You're still trying to win in your first year. I think the first year is the most vulnerable year because people may be reaching too far. So hopefully we provide our listeners with some balance today. So I think the, the actually the example you just brought up of Freeman versus Bellinger is a really interesting one because Freeman is, is you know, 31. He's pushing towards 32. He's just starting, at least for me, he's just starting to hit that age where I might care in a keeper league. And the reason I mentioned that, and I'm curious to get your take on this too. For me, I'm rarely looking more than, let's say, three years out, maybe four years. There's the occasional guy like a Juan Soto or Ronald Acuna where I'm thinking like, yeah, this guy's locked in. He's going to be there forever. Uh, but in general, with my keepers, I'm not usually thinking more than two to three, maybe four years out. Is that is that how you think about keepers? Or do you think of the, about them more long-term than that? I don't. I don't think about them more long-term. I mean, I, I think I'm actually even more short focused than, than you would be more, more recent. Like I I'm, I'm looking every year. I think the best keeper league teams, the best, especially dynasty teams as well. You should never really be saying you're quote rebuilding, especially in keeper leagues where you're, you only most of the time have to keep a certain percentage of your roster. So in terms of the keepers themselves, like sure. Yeah. I mean, if I get to choose between Max Scherzer and Walker Bueller, of course I'm going to want Walker Bueller because he's younger but I'm not the type to then be so opposed to Max Scherzer um, that, that I think like, oh, he's unkeepable because, you know, three years from now, he could be throwing 88 miles an hour and out of the league. Well, I'm not worried about that for 2021 and and I'm, I'm trying to win next year. Um, so, it, I mean, it, it is, it's a difficult balance and, and I, I totally understand the mindset of like, oh no, I'm going to be looking two, three years out. I'm going to be maybe even quote unquote rebuilding my keeper set because I think it's kind of run its, its course here. Um, but I think the most effective teams are the ones that can just do that kind of turnover. I'm in a league right now, as an example, my three keep, it's just a three keeper, but it's a 16 team league. So it's, it's a little deep, you know, the top 50 players are pretty much off the board and I've got Giolito and Bregman who I feel great about. And my third keeper Scherzer. So all that tells me is like, all right, the end is coming near for Scherzer. So maybe I want to keep that in mind in the first couple rounds of the draft, but I'm not opposed to keeping Scherzer for 2021. Cause I think he's a great pitcher. Yeah, I think that totally makes sense. And I, you know, I went back and I looked at on NFBC the uh, ADP average draft position data from 2017, just to sort of get some some a look at this. And if you look at guys who are going in the top ten, there was Trout, there was Betts, there was also guys like Clayton Kershaw, still good, not a first round pick anymore. Jose Altuve, who was just awful last year. Chris Bryant, who knows what's happened to him. Um, you've got Paul Goldschmidt. Again, still fine, but obviously going much, much later than he was at that time. Manny Machado has, has sort of bounced back after being down a little bit, it seems. And so those are all just guys in the top 10 from that year, right? If you go down to like in the 20s and 30s, it's even less likely that those guys are still still up there. And so one of the things that, that jumps out to me when I'm thinking about like a keeper is even a guy who's relatively young, take a guy like, uh, like Corey Seager a few years ago, who you might have drafted thinking, young shortstop, he's in my shortstop for the next decade. 
like he had some down years there. He had down years there that were down enough that he, depending on the structure of your league and how keepers are working, you may have gotten rid of him. And so there is a point where it's like, don't overthink it. Sometimes it's better to just take the take the the sure bet um, and take the better player. I think one of the big things that makes a difference to me, you just mentioned your league has three keepers. The number of keepers is is a pretty big factor for me and how often I reach and how much I'm going to reach for for youth. If I've only got three keepers, I'm probably going to find three keepers. I could just draft the way I normally want to draft, and three of those guys are going to prove to be worth keeping. I'm in a league. I play a lot of auto new leagues. Auto new leagues, you can keep almost anybody, but you're paying their salary. I'm in a league with 14 keepers where, again, there's salary involved. In those leagues, I'm much more thoughtful about long-term value. Because all of a sudden, instead of keeping three guys who I'll probably stumble on, even if I don't even try, I've got to keep you know, 14 in that one league. I often keep 25 or 30 in an auto new league. And so I'm starting to think a lot more in those cases about like, oh, at every pick, there's value here that I should be, I should potentially be reaching for because I'm going to have this guy or could have this guy for another year or two. Whereas once I've got my three and a three keeper, you know, the fourth best value you get is still just a guy you're going to cut. Right, right. No, that's uh, that's too true. I mean, I, and I think this is kind of the beauty of, of keeper and long-term leagues is just many ways of looking at your squad, many ways of thinking. I mean, of course, the, the amount of teams in your league and the amount of keepers all factor into it. And I think a simple way of looking at it is, all right, take how many keepers there are and multiply that by the amount of teams. And like, ideally, each of your keepers should be within that top X amount of players. But then you do have to start thinking about that, the, the age and, and so on and so forth. I mean, looking at, again, that that odd new league, like there's there's that value I have on Eloy Jimenez. And I feel like I'm going to bring this up every week. To me, that is my most crucial, my most important player on a team that has Mookie Betts on a team that has Trey Turner, so on and so forth, because of that added value of his age and his cost. Um, so again, the, the specific parameters of your league and, and what you can keep and, and, and what the restrictions are for keeping players are too important um, in figuring out what you're going to do. Let's talk a little bit about costs. You just brought that up with Auto New. Obviously, in Auto New, it's a very clear salary. Salaries go up. This is what guys cost. In other leagues. Um, I've got another keeper league where my cost is also sort of salary based, but it's a little bit of a different salary structure. There's other leagues where you give up a pick, right? You give up the round you took the guy in, or you give up a round earlier, or something like that, depending on the structure of the league. How much does cost factor in for you at this point, right? You're getting ready for a draft, whether it's a new league or a league that you're coming back from. How does the fact that there is a cost or the way that cost is structured impact your thinking on who you're taking or how you're thinking about the future well it, it has to impact your thinking it has to um like that those leagues th- that's my favorite kind of keeper league where you're giving up the pick from the round that you took the player and then each year it, it, you know if you keep that player again well he was a keeper so now it's one of your first picks um i really like that that format i think that provides nice balance but it also gives an advantage to owners who make nice draft picks it, but I think you, you you absolutely have to keep that in mind. But there has to be a balance where like, OK, you know, I took Bo Bichette in round nine um, and I took uh, and I have sitting on my roster Trey Turner, who I took in round two. If you think that Trey Turner, it gives you that much better of a chance to win your league than Bo Bichette. And maybe that's not a good example because I really love Bo Bichette and I would probably actually take Bo Bichette in the situation. But if you think that Trey Turner is going to give you that much better of a chance to win your league, you got to keep him. 
you, you got to be looking at the next year. Get that title. And then if there's 10 teams in the league and you win the title in 2021, well, you got 10 years off, baby, before you have to win another one. But go and get that title. Yeah, I think the, the big challenge for me with those leagues, the big I guess the big thing I think about rather than a challenge with those leagues is you get limited upside in keeping your early picks, right? So you have a first round pick, let's say it's a new league, and you're deciding between Mike Trout and Juan Soto or something like that at your, your draft pick. Now, you may like Soto better anyways, which is totally fine. So you take Soto, great. But from a keeper value perspective, um, not only do I think Trout will be fine for the next two to three years anyways, but there's just no upside in having a keeper that costs you a first round pick, right? You take one of those guys, they have a great year. They're still a first round pick. If you keep them, great. You've given up fair value for them. Um, and if you don't keep them, you're going to get back them or someone like them with your first round pick because everyone else who kept their first round pick gave up a pick to do it. And so you're going to still have that early pick where you can take, take a good guy like that. So for me, when there's a cost like that, the big impact it has is I let, I end up thinking more about upside later, long-term upside later in the draft. The first, let's say four or five rounds, I just want the best guy. And I almost draft it like redraft because I'm just not overly concerned about like, oh, am I going to want to keep this guy at this pick next year? Because that pick has so much value. By the sixth round, seventh round, certainly as you get into the 10th to 15th to 20th rounds, that's where I'm way more likely to take a risky pick, where I'm more likely to draft for upside, where I'm more likely to draft a guy I think is going to be a breakout, right? I think one of the things that I find in, in redraft leagues is people still overvalue youth. And so in redraft leagues, I often draft old teams because I'm like, I'll take the steady, surefire 15th round pick who's going to give me eighth round value because everybody thinks he's too old rather than jumping at the young kid who might turn into a third round value, but also might be cut in a, in a month or two. Mm -hmm. um, but in a keeper league, those later picks are where you can really change your long-term fortunes. And so for me, those, you know, those 15th, 16th, 17th round picks, those are the ones where I'm going to say like, you know what, I'm going to reach for a guy who maybe is a, you know, it's a 16th round. This guy's a 20th round ADP. But if everything breaks right, he's an eighth round pick, a seventh round pick, a sixth round pick next year. Like those are the guys that I want to I want to grab. I think last year, a really good example of this is Kyle Tucker, right? You could have gotten Kyle Tucker super late. There was a lot of risk. He was basically not going to play. You had no idea what to expect from him. Now he's going a whole lot earlier than he was last year. And if you grabbed him late, he's almost for sure one of your keepers in, in one of these leagues where there's a cost to it because he's so cheap compared to what his cost would be this year. Yeah, no question. Uh, and I think Kyle Tucker is a great example. To me, though, especially in this current environment, there are two exceptions where I'm, I'm giving up that first round pick to keep one of the two following categories of players. And I almost view it as like the NBA where like those top five, six players in the NBA, man, you give up everything you can to get one of those players on your team. To me, those it's the top three pitchers on the board. Um, that's that's Bieber, Cole, and Degrom. There's no way that I'm letting them go back into the draft if I have to pay the first round pick. I'll pay it. The other one, if it's a, particularly if it's a roto scoring setting, category setting, those speed power guys, your Acuna's, your Fernando Tatis Juniors, your Cody Bellinger's, even your uh, those guys. I don't think I'm letting them go back into the draft. 
I'm going to pay the price. But with that said, there are other players who I 100% agree with in those first, even second round guys who like, I'm really piling on Freddie Freeman right now, but like Freddie Freeman, who, you know, it's great. He's good. He's an absolutely tremendous fantasy asset. But if I have to give up a first round pick or I could just get that pick back and get somebody of of hopefully similar or one day similar value, then I'm I'm probably going to do that. I think that makes sense. And I I think the big thing I would advise anyone who's, who's listening and trying to think about what to do in their league is, is take the time to really look at your league and how your league behaves and what your league rules are uh, and what you expect other people to do. Because I think what you're saying about DeGrom and Bieber, like I'm totally with you on that. But the one thing I would caution is you're picking first in your draft. You had a bad year last year. You're going to be the first pick in the draft anyways. You don't have to worry about that then. You can make like don't give up the first pick in the draft to keep DeGrom or Bieber because you can keep someone else who's valuable later. And your worst case scenario is you use your first pick to take DeGrom or Bieber. Your best case scenario is somebody tosses bets back, right? And now you've given up the first pick to keep DeGrom or Bieber, which is great but you've passed on Mookie bets to do it. So it's, you know, these, these leagues where there's a cost, it's all about that trade-off. It's all about paying attention to what's happening around you and and making sure you make the right call to get the right guy. Um, You know, you just won your league last year and you're picking 12th and you get to keep DeGrom or Bieber. Yeah, go ahead. Right. That's, that makes sense. That's, that is value. Um, But it's all a balance. It's all a balance. Yeah. And I think, you know, for league commissioners out there, this, this, is part of the reason why it makes it so important. You set a good keeper deadline date, right? Like you give owners time to prepare so you can see like, you know what bets is going to be back in the draft. So-and-so is only going to keep, you know, those three players or those eight players, whatever the case may be. So now I have time to really think about my decision. I think a, a pretty decently early keeper deadline date, uh, not too early where you, you're worried some guy could get injured, but you know, give someone a week, two weeks to prepare. I think that's important. You like to have it just like a week, two weeks before the draft? Um, yeah. So my in one of my leagues where I'm the league commissioner, we kind of have this like soft keeper lock date where, um, you know, we want to give everybody an opportunity to see like who plans on being kept. And after that point, it's kind of like on the honor system. Like, yeah, okay, some people could cheat this, but nobody has to this point anyway. Um, where like if somebody gets hurt or something, you know, you just email me and change your keepers and that's fine. Um, but yeah, we like to give owners a lot of time to, to figure that out. Makes sense. Yeah, I think you know, in in auto new, the keeper deadline is January thirty first. Um, it's sort of a uh, an interesting structure because rather than doing it league by league, it's it's auto new wide. Every league has the same deadline. Uh, gives everyone time to plan their auctions. Gives you plenty of off season to make trades. Off season trading is a, a big part of auto new. It also is sort of it's just sort of fun. I think for those of us who are who are invested in in auto new and spend a lot of time on it, this last Sunday night when we hit the keeper deadline was you were just all of your leagues, guys were getting cut left and right. There was a lot of chatter in the auto new community about like, oh, I can't believe this guy just got cut. And it, it creates sort of a, some excitement around it. But generally, I agree. Other than that circumstance where there's sort of a community aspect to it, yeah, a week or two, like give people that that week to prep for the draft. You don't want people showing up to the draft not knowing who's on the board. Um, So I think that's that's a good timeline. So with that, as promised, we're going to challenge Pete a little bit here. And he started to give us some examples, but we're going to get into some, some, I think, some pretty challenging, interesting discussions uh, where we're going to compare some players. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to talk about a few sets of players. In each case, we've got two players who play the same position, who have in most cases, pretty different ADP. We are using NFBC ADP. And 
the the question for you, Pete, is going to be, you know, what what would you do? Do you take the the older, maybe more established, maybe less exciting player at the higher cost, or in a keeper league, do you wait because of that future value? And the first example, I want to give a couple of shortstops. So Marcus Simeon just signed a one year deal. His ADP right now over the last month is 142. Um, I think that's come up a little bit or down a little bit closer to the top a little bit since he signed. People always like to know that their guy has a job before they draft him. Uh, And then you got Gavin Lux, who's going more than 100 picks later at 248. This is a guy who is a a highly touted prospect, potentially a ton of long-term value in a guy like Lux, a ton of upside you waiting 106 picks and taking Lux instead of Simeon? You taking Simeon? What, what's your plan? Yeah, no, I think this is a good one to start on. And I, and I promise I'm not going to cop out on every single one and say it depends on your situation because obviously it does for all of these, right? But if we want to look at these two in a vacuum and, and kind of figure out what am I going to do? Should those ADPs be closer? I think is an important question as well in keeper leagues, right? I love Marcus Simeon going into 2021. I have a really hard time not taking him. I mean, I think it'd be a little hypocritical at this point since I just said you should be going for it. And this is a player I really like. When he had his breakout in 2019, he hit 302 off fastballs. Um, and that was backed up by the expected batting average at 295. 26 homers and 25 doubles just off of fastballs. Now in front of him, this year is going to be George Springer, who I think is one of the three, maybe five at worst, best leadoff men in all of baseball. And if Simeon slots into that number two hole, which roster resource has him pegged for with thunderous bats behind him, he's going to see a lot of fastballs. He's not a guy that you're going to want to put on. He has a very high walk rate. He's got a great eye at the plate, so they can't dance around him. They're going to have to throw him fastballs when Springer gets on. And he's a guy who's kind of proven that he can absolutely smoke them. I think 2020, Chad, was a little bit of a just a, a write-off for him. Like That whole Oakland lineup was just a disappointment. Look at all the guys that went. Loriano, Olsen, Chapman. I, I'm willing to give Simeon a pass there. Yeah, and I, I did a piece at Pitcher List a couple weeks ago where I looked at guys who got off to slow starts. And the, the thing I was looking at is with no spring training, were there guys who just needed a week or two of spring training that didn't get it? And Simeon didn't quite make the cut for that article. But if you, uh, because just because of the data I used and the way I cut the data to, to sort of identify the guys who had the biggest in- improvements. But if you cut out his first couple weeks, he actually had a pretty solid season. It wasn't his 2019 but it wasn't nearly as bad as it looked. And and I think if he had done that, if he had put up just a steadier, above-league average, solid season rather than what looks like a disaster, I think people would be looking at it more as like, yeah, it was a couple months. He was so great in 2019. There's a ton of upside here. And instead, because his overall line looks so bad, you've got people saying like, I don't know. Maybe 2019 was just a fluke. And I think those couple of weeks make a really big difference. And so to me, it's like not only do you, you know, not only do I think you can give him a write-off for for the season in 2020, you just give him those couple weeks off. It completely changes the narrative and it, and it completely makes you rethink what his value is. Um, I, I personally I think he was super smart from a from a real baseball perspective, to take a one-year deal. I think he's going to rebuild his value and hit free agency next year in a, a little bit of a less crazy world and with a much better season behind him. And I agree with you in this case. I would I would take him. I think he's actually he's a good value there, and I think he may end up proving to be a keeper value there, depending on, again, your league structure and what it would cost and stuff like that. Lux, I don't know. I don't know what to make of Gavin Lux right now. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, two quick numbers on on, on Semyon that kind of stick out to me that I, I want to move or, or put out there before we move on to Lux is is thirteen percent pop up rate. I mean, that's the worst contact you can make in baseball is the pop up, right? Thirteen percent. That's almost double the league average. That was an entire fluke, and his ground ball rate was also was low. And for Simeon, I want that to be a little bit higher. I think that impacted his batting average. He's a faster player. Um, but in terms of Gavin Luck, so why do we why are we taking the old man, quote unquote, Semyon, who's going to be 31 at the end of the season in a keeper league over his top prospect, Gavin Lux? Well, I, I like Lux. I do. I think he's, you know, Chad, we've been talking a lot about post-type sleepers, and I think Lux certainly fits the bill there. I think with Kike Hernandez out of town and in Boston, um, I'm, I'm feeling a lot better about Lux's fantasy value, but this is still just 138 career at bats where if I have the opportunity to take Marcus Semyon as opposed to waiting for this 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 much of an unknown in Gavin Lux, who, by the way, roster resource does not have slated to start. Um, still, even still with Chris Taylor and Edwin Rios there, I'm still going to take Semi and the strikeouts are concerning for Lux. His his first two seasons kind of looked look similar, but again, the sample's so small that I'm I'm not ready to crucify him for it. I'm just definitely not ready to take him over Marcus Semyon. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. I'm not even willing to, I think, wait on him, right? There are some of these cases where, no, no, I would take the the more established player over the younger guy, but I would rather wait five more rounds, take someone else earlier. I'm not even sure I feel that way about Lux. And I think the the last one of the last things you said is one of the most important things, which is he seems to be buried on that roster. And I think that matters for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you're not playing, you can't help me. <laughs> you're not doing me any good in a in a fantasy league where you're not accruing any stats. The other is I I sometimes feel like with guys like this, and the other guy who who this seems to have happened to in the last week is Keston Hira. When teams don't show faith in their prospects, it makes me wonder what they know that I don't. And so I look at Lux and it's like, they still want Chris Taylor and Edwin Rios out there instead of him. They may go out and sign Justin Turner again. They were they were supposedly involved in uh, Marcelo Zuna. Had they signed Ozuna, he goes to the outfield. Muncie moves to second base. Now you've got Taylor and Rios sharing third base. You're bare, like, there, there's all this stuff out there where they're just burying him on their roster. And maybe they just think he needs more seasoning or something, but it, it makes you worry a little bit. With with Hira, it's the same thing. It's like, he's their second baseman of the future, but then they just signed Colton Wong to be their second baseman for two years and moved Hira to first base. And the next day, there was a rumor that they were interested in Shinsu Chu as a first baseman. And it's like, okay, well, if they're not even sure what position he's going to play, and this isn't a guy who's just like, his bat is so great that you're going to play him anywhere and blah, like, we'll figure it out. Like, they just seem to keep not being invested in him. Um, I get concerned with that, again, just from this perspective of like, those teams know those players way better than I do. And so if there's something they're seeing, and maybe there's not, maybe they really just think like, hey, Lux just needs a few more months and by midseason he'll be ready and we'll jettison Taylor when it's time. Or maybe the the Brewers are thinking like, look, here is actually going to be fine at third base long term or first base or the outfield. We don't even care. His bat's just that great. It'll play anywhere. Fine. But I don't know that. And so from where I'm sitting, it, it's a little concerning. So let's jump into the next player comp. Uh, we're going to move from one high-value defensive position to another, from shortstop to catcher. JT Real Muto, uh, another guy who just re-signed, another guy who has been really, really good. His ADP right now is 36, which I think is super high for catcher. Now, this is these ADPs are from two catcher leagues. And so that does inflate his value a little bit, as well as the guy we're comparing him to. But I think, generally speaking, even if you're a one-catcher league, their relative values are pretty similar to this. So JT Real Muto going around 36th, 
Will Smith, another young Dodger, has an ADP of 106. You taking Real Muto, or are you going to wait and take the kid? Chad, if, if Stephen A. Smith was part of our podcast, which would be really weird, he would be about to scream that this is blasphemous. But I am going to take Will Smith in this situation over JT Real Muto. Real Muto. And we, you and I kicked this around a little bit last night. And so it, it inspired me to see like, all right, well, JT is going to turn 30 this year. So what, were the, what are the legendary catchers of the last you know decade or so? What What's their situation when they turned 30? So I went, and these are the average numbers for their age 30, 31, 32, 33 seasons. Okay, so four seasons, that's a lot. And you can expect that, granted, by 32 and 33, they trail off a bit more. And at 30 and 31, they're much better in, in most of these cases. But I'm going to run through these really quickly. Joe Maurer, he averaged over those four seasons 131 games, a 280 average, nine homers, 54 RBI, 65 runs. Buster Posey, um, he sat out his age 33 season. Uh, this year is going to be his age 34. So I just have 30, 31, 32. He averaged 120 games, 289 average, eight homers, 49 ribbies, 41 runs. Yadi Molina, 30, 31, 32, 33 seasons. He averaged 132 games, 296 average, eight homers, 59 RBI, 50 runs. And Jonathan Lucroy, I just want to throw one more in there. Um, for those seasons, he averaged 123 games. 261, 10 homers, 46 runs, 52 RBI. Now, look, Real Mucho might be a, a better hitter than all of those guys. And that's saying a lot because Buster Posey is a, is a pretty darn good hitter. But there's there's a clear mark with catchers where, like, yeah, they can be great. They can be these unbelievable fantasy assets. And it goes, and it goes quick, kind of across the board. And Will Smith, that much younger, also a very good player in his own right, and we can talk about him in a minute. I'm not saying it's going to happen this year for Real Muto, and now I sound like Max Kellerman with the Brady Cliff, but I'm I'm worried about Real Muto. And even if they say, all right, well, we're going to move him to first base, okay, great. That's what happened with, with Victor Martinez, right? He went to DH, but if he loses catcher eligibility, then what are we even talking about? Um, so that's I think that's a real concern in keeper leagues, is a catcher that's turning 30. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think if you look at the catchers who have who have aged better, by the time they're 30, they've done exactly what you just said. They're not catchers anymore, right? Uh, Carlos Santana is is still going pretty strong in, in his mid-30s. He hasn't been catching since he was 28, uh, mostly due to concussion issues. Uh, it's not to stick with with Cleveland guys, which I'm apt to do, but uh, at least a guy you and I share, Victor Martinez, was a was a great catcher for a long time, and, uh, especially for fantasy purposes. And then he was a DH, um, and I think he lasted just past 30. I think he was 31 or 32 by the time he actually stopped catching, but not a whole lot more than that. And like you said, the value for a guy like Real Muto, like if he's your first baseman instead of your catcher in fantasy, he's just not that valuable to you. He's absolutely not nearly as valuable, Chad. And I mean, again, like I, I love JT Real Muto. So I, it, this is hard for me, but I, I just I just rattled off a few Hall of Famers, right? I think Yachty's going to make it and, and Posey and Maurer as well. And when they hit 30, like look, JT Real Muto, his value, arguably more so than his bat, is his catching, right? I mean, to, to a baseball team, it's his catching. That's why they signed him to a five-year deal. So will he stay catching? Maybe. Yeah, that's why they signed him. Well, especially for the Phillies where you got you got Hoskins there, you've got Alec Bohm, who if he doesn't stick at third base is gonna end up as a first baseman. You know, maybe next year they get the DH, but like there's nowhere to put Real Muto. Right. They did not sign him to not play, and they did not sign him to push Bohm or Hoskins 
out of the picture. And so I think you're absolutely right. I think he is going to be taking that wear and tear on his knees behind the plate, dealing with all that comes with being a catcher for the next four years. And I'm not concerned he's going to lose that eligibility because of that. But I think you're, you're absolutely right to raise this fear that, you know, it might not be this year, it might not be next year, but sometime in the next three years, it's all going to fall apart on offense for him, at least based on history. And maybe he'll be the exception, but it's a big bet to take with a with that early a pick. That's that's like a historical bet to take based on based on what we've seen. And this this comes down to what we were we we're talking about earlier, Chad. Though is like I'm not I'm not looking to just you know I'm not saying take Adley Rushman over JT Real Muto, right? I'm saying take Will Smith. Will Smith has shown awesome strides. He's in a great lineup. There's going to be a lot of turnover, right? I'm not worried about, about Kybert Ruiz taking his play time from him. I think Ruiz is going to be traded by the end of the season. And, and the biggest improvement we saw from Will Smith last year in that limited sample is his contact rates across the board were better. He was chasing less. He was making a lot of contact. You know, the 73% sprint speed, he might not be. He might not be a nothing in steals. He did have a nine stolen base season in the minors. So, I'm not, and that's what we like about JT Romuto as well, right? Like he he could rattle off those ten steals for you. So even that little hint of like value that 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 Real Muto has, I could see in Will Smith. And if I if JT Real Muto once again finishes the number one catcher in 2021, I don't think Will Smith's going to be far off. And going forward after that, I think Will Smith could pass him. Um, that's why I like that move there. Yeah, I, I think the the big difference here for me, um, and it, I think everything you said is right. I think there's a very real chance that Smith is a better fantasy player, let alone value, within the next couple of years. But the other big piece of this right now is if you think about those keeper leagues where there is a cost associated, you're paying a lot for Real Muto. Um, you're not paying nearly as much for Will Smith. And if Smith does close that gap or catch up to Real Muto in value by next year, the keeper value he brings for the pick you have to give up for him now is going to grow. Uh, there's no upside in in Real Muto as a keeper, right? The, his price this year, you're, if you pick him this year at his price, your best case scenario is that he's just as good and still costs the same price next year. And he's a fine keeper, but he's not a particularly high value keeper. Um, you know, the risk, of course, is that you wait on Smith, you don't get him because somebody else snags him before you do. But I think if I knew I could have the choice between Real Muto, where he's going, Smith, where he's going, I'm with you. I think Smith's the guy. Yeah, uh, 100%. So let's jump to first base. We're, we're going to move from high-value defensive positions to a low-value defensive position pretty quickly here. In this case, the the older guy who's been around, Paul Goldschmidt, with the Cardinals. He's going around pick 101 in these leagues, just outside that top 100. The Orioles, young, I guess, first baseman slash left fielder. I don't know where they're going to stick him long term. Uh, Ryan Mountcastle uh, going around 169. So much later in those hundreds, probably about five, six rounds later, you can get him versus Goldie. What you doing with this one? I'm a big Paul Goldschmidt fan, Chad. I'm, I'm taking Goldschmidt. You know, if you're looking long term and you want to establish your first baseman, first of all, why? There are always some that appear that are going to be able to produce what Mountcastle does. He wasn't too much of a power threat. He had a nice 2019 season at AAA with 25 homers in only like 130 games. So there, there's definitely power there. Um, it's not necessarily what he's known for. And it's usually what I want out of that position. I think there's other first basemen that are on the cusp. So if you're looking like, I really want my long-term first baseman for whatever reason, Torkelson, Cassis, Cassis, um, you know, all these guys, Andrew Vaughn are going to be up soon. But why do I like Goldschmidt? Well, I think Goldschmidt's awesome. And I think people were very quick to write him off when he was struggling with fastballs. And, and, he, and then he got to St. Louis and he started off struggling. 
that 2019 season in St. Louis, that was a great fantasy season. And that was with a Babbitt that was like monumentally lower than his career average. This year, well, I shouldn't say this year, in 2020, his Babbitt got a lot closer to his career average. I want to say his career average is like 349, and, and he was up at like 369 from a 303 in 2019. So even with the low Babbitt in 2019, he had a great season. It, it kind of normalizes, goes, goes back to his career average, and he looked like a great player again. And now, of course, the the elephant in the room, Nolan Arenado, going to St. Louis. Those two are going to be there for the foreseeable future. Goldschmidt's done it plenty of times in the past. I'm in. Give me Goldschmidt, definitely, uh, over Mountcastle, even in keeper leagues. Yeah, the thing with Goldschmidt that I think is really interesting, so last year he posted uh, what I think from a from a walk and strikeout rate, you'd have to call the best year of his career. Uh, his strikeout rate was actually the best of his career. It was 18.6%. He'd never been below 20 before. Um, his walk rate, he'd once posted a walk rate of 17%. He was at 16% last year, but still super high. Um short season, all of that. But Goldie talked a little bit uh, last year about having trained with something called Win Reality, which is a virtual reality software that basically lets you watch live pitching. Um, There's this great story of him watching a teammate early last season, I think around summer camp time, watching a teammate, um, I can't remember who it was, in the virtual reality, then going to camp and having that pitcher throw the same pitches to him and walking away and being like, those were the same pitches. Like the thing they've got programmed in this virtual reality was so similar that I actually like, I feel like I'm, I'm seeing the real thing. Um, and he claims he watched thousands and thousands of pitches and all of a sudden his plate discipline got a lot better. Uh, and so there's a little bit here to me, like, you know, when reality doesn't have maybe the reputation of driveline yet does with pitchers, but when you see a pitcher gain a mile or two in their velocity, and then you hear that they were at driveline, you're like, that's legit, right? They trained for it. They added that velocity and you start to believe that that's going to stick. I feel that way about Goldie right now. And I'm, it's possible I'm jumping on something that's nothing. I think more likely it's it's something that Goldie is early on and I'm hoping to be early on too, which is that this ability to just churn through pitches like that really helps your ability to lay off the pitches you want to lay off, swing at the pitches you want to swing at. His O swing went way down after being up the year before. His Z swing was actually down after being up the year before too, but he being more selective isn't a bad thing in the zone, right? He's swinging at the pitches he can hit. And so I look at that and it's like, if those changes stick and he continues to post strikeout rates that that pull down his career average, man, there's a lot, a lot of upside still left in that bat. And he's a guy who, you know, at the beginning of the show, when I talked about guys from the 2017 draft top 10 who are no longer in that top 10, Goldie's one of those guys. And while he's no longer in that top 10, that talent is still there. Uh, and so I'm, I don't think he's going to play himself into being a first round pick next year. He's still 33 years old. But I do think he could play himself well within that top 100 and become not only a guy who you're happy you took this year, but a guy you could actually keep next year going into his age 34. I love that. I think that's fascinating. I mean, I, even if you're the type of person here that and say, all right, yeah, whatever. I, the, you know, he, he looked at the simulations. I think that would be a little reckless to dismiss that because the player is saying it helped him. But also, this is just a player who's always he's always been good. He has not, like, okay, he's had some serious slumps during seasons, but look at every season he's had since his breakout 2012 sophomore season. 
he's always, always, always been good. So I don't know why we've abandoned ship just because in 2019 with a career low Babbitt, he hit 260 and still hit 34 homers with 97 RBI and 97 runs. And we could say, well, those are just the surface stats. That's what wins fantasy. So I, I'm I'm still 1,000% in on Paul Goldschmidt, not ready to jump off the ship till he gives me a reason to. So what do you think about Ryan Mountcastle in general? I mean, is he a guy that you're just not interested in or is it just this comparison? I just think he's such a such an interesting player at that particular position, right? Because first base for as long as we've been playing Chad, that's where you you lock up your, you know, minimum 25 homer but hopefully 30 plus especially these day homer guy. I mean, look, it's not as as it's not nearly as deep of a position as it used to be. Um that's that's for sure, but Mountcastle doesn't at this point offer that. He's not a high exit velocity guy. He's not a big power hitter. He wasn't, you know, he could be a, a solid doubles guy. Like I wouldn't be surprised if the slugging percentage does jump off the page a little bit, but those homers, they're not there yet. They could be, but I'm not banking on it. He's more of this weird, like power and speed at first base player that it's, it's odd to structure your roster around those players because then you've got to find that value elsewhere um, and go searching in drafts. The park's great. You know, I love like every Orioles hitter for Lord knows why they're like the worst offense. And I'm, I'm hyping up a new Oriole every time we talk, but I'm not completely out on him. I just, I would never take him over uh, Paul Goldschmidt. Yeah, he, he is a guy who, for me, league settings matter a lot because I don't love him as a first baseman and I do love him as an outfielder. Uh, in, in auto new leagues, he is outfield eligible. It's, there's a couple other formats where depending on how many games they require or whether or not they're using 2019 stats and stuff like that, he may be outfield eligible. So, you know, check your league, make sure you know exactly what you're getting. Um, he did play 20 games in the out, 23 starts in the outfield last year. So there, there are going to be a decent number of leagues where he's in, an outfielder. He seems to be locked in at first base this year, but I'm going to be watching that closely because he's a guy that I'm, I'm really interested in drafting this year and then watching those games played. Because if he moves around a little bit and gets those outfield starts and maintains outfield eligibility into the future, I'm super interested in him. He's a really solid bat. But I agree with you. At first base, there's just so many options at first base that he doesn't stand out. Uh, and so he is he's a guy who, if he maintains that outfield eligibility, um, I'm, I'm happy with him this year because he has it. If he keeps it, I'm going to be happy with him again next year. I think he could have keeper value at the price he's going if if he maintains that eligibility. And if he's first base only by next year, or if he's first base only in your league this year, um, I'm probably staying away. So let's jump into our next one. We've talked a lot about hitters. Let's compare some pitchers. So Patrick Corbin uh, had a great year with Washington when they went on to win the series. Not as great last year. ADP still pretty high, 139. A little bit lower than than Goldie, who we just talked about, but still sort of in that, you know, close to the top 100, certainly within the top 150. Outside the top 150, Herman Marquez, the Rockies ace, Always a little scary to say the words Rockies and Ace in the same sentence, but Marquez has been pretty good. So what about this one? Uh, this is this is a you know what I was gonna say this is a tough one. I actually don't think this is that tough for me. I'm gonna take Herman Marquez and I'm gonna start with Patrick Corbin. Now look, it was just sixty-five and two thirds innings pitched. I accept that. Okay, but all of this is incredibly alarming to me. It was the worst FIP, the worst DRA, the worst K9, the worst home runs per nine, the worst swinging percentage he's had since 2016. 
It was the lowest ground ball percentage of his career. It was a very high BABIP that he gave up, and it was not helped by a whopping 44.2 percentage hard hit percentage. His average exit velocity was the worst of his career, up over 90 miles an hour. It was his worst fastball. It was the worst fastball in MLB, according to PVAL, with negative 11.4. And again, 65.2 thirds innings pitched, or, or two thirds innings pitched. Like that's, I'm not ready to completely write the player off. But when you also consider that the two years before, he, he, those are the biggest inning totals of his career well, really since 2013. He threw over 200 innings both in 2018 and in 2019. In 2019, pile on the playoffs. So maybe he was just tired in 2020 or, or maybe he's now gassed. He's not a guy that relies on velocity. He relies on an excellent slider. And if he's if that's getting hit around now, I just I have no interest. So by default, I'm choosing Herman Marquez, who we can talk about in a second. But Chad, I'm curious your thoughts on Corbin because – I'm not seeing anything to to point at and be like, well, at least there was this. It just was all bad. Yeah, I, I think the only thing you can really point at is just it was a short season and maybe it was just noise and maybe coming, like I said, maybe coming off a World Series, he just didn't have anything left. I, th- there's some excuses you can make rather than things you can point at, I think. He's also a guy who is going to turn 32 right around the All-Star break this year. So he is starting to hit that age where guys start to to slide a little bit. I think if I'm looking for positives with Corbin, it's it's something you said, which is he doesn't rely on just having an overpowering fastball or something. He is he strikes me as the kind of guy who, as his velocity declines, can learn to pitch with lower velocity, um, rather than being a guy who you know gets by with gas and when that fastball's gone, he's got nothing left. And, and so I'm I don't have a lot to base that on. It's sort of speculation on my part. Uh, and so I am still sort of intrigued by Corbin. I still think there's a lot of upside there. I think he he probably will bounce back some from what he did last year. Uh, but I'm I'm with you if on this comparison though. I think I, I'm not even sure this is a keeper league question for me. I may just prefer Marquez. I agree. Um, I, I like Ramon Marquez. I love that that you know we were <laughs> thinking of notes for him. And it's, it's still so weird to me that because for some reason, I feel like we've been hearing about him forever, that he's not even 26 years old yet. He turns 26 in about a month. And that makes him younger than both Walker Bueller and Corbin Burns, who we just literally burst onto the scene. But he's clearly a good pitcher. It's cores that holds him back. Career 3.51 ERA in the road. He's got great velocity in the fastball. Doesn't have a lot of spin, but he's in cores. It gets hit hit hard you know maybe he just needs to talk to trevor bauer on how to increase you know the spin on his fastball generate more swings and misses um and more weaker contact but i like herman marquez at least you can play him on the road comfortably corbin i i i'm very hesitant to play him anywhere next year yeah i think the other thing with marquez is he is getting more expensive um, he's not expensive yet, but uh, he's going to make about seven point eight million this year. Goes up to eleven point three next, and then fifteen point three for twenty twenty three before they have a sixteen million dollar option on him for twenty twenty four. The Rockies claim they're not in a rebuild. The Rockies should probably be in a rebuild, and so I think one of the one of the interesting things with Marquez is. I think he's a perfectly fine, even to a good value where he where you're going to pay for him right now. And there is a non-zero chance that he has a new home park sometime in the next 12 months. And if that happens, you're going to take a guy who's going in the 170s now and he's going to jump up to being a top 100 guy. Um, and it's going to be a big jump. And so when I th- this is a perfect example for me of where even if you like Corbin better, they're close enough 
that the long-term value of grabbing Marquez and having that breakout potential, right? Potentially being able to give up a, you know, what 170, he's like a 15th round pick or whatever he is right now. Um, and then next year him being maybe a eighth, ninth, tenth round pick and being able to pay that 15th round price to keep him as an eighth round pick. Like that potential is really out there. And I would, uh, you can't ignore that, um, especially in a case like this where I don't think you're giving up that much immediate value. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm a hundred percent with you, especially, I mean, think what the Rockies could get if they just, if Charlie Blackman gets off to a hot start and they decide, all right, we're going to sell story Blackman and Marquez. That, that could ignite a pretty substantial rebuild. So, like, yeah, it looks like he's under contract for a while with the Rockies, but I, I I think, like you think, there's a high likelihood he finds himself in a new home, and if he does, I'm with you. He all of a sudden becomes potentially a top 100 player and a much better starter. So with that, I think we're going to close this chapter of the episode and jump to uh, our, our favorite recurring ep- or f- favorite recurring segment of the Keeper Cut podcast, the auto new question of the day. Uh, for those of you who are new to us, uh, which is basically everybody since this is our second episode, um, auto new is a uh, format. You can find it on Fangraphs. Um, I'm very familiar with it, played it for a long time. Pete is new to it. And so we are going to spend some time in every episode answering some questions for Pete and helping him get ready for his first season of Auto New. So with that, Pete, hit me with your question. Sure, Chad. Uh, yes, the Auto New question of the day, also known as Pete needs help. Um, it, Chad, I'm coming from like, you know, we talked about this in our first episode. I've been playing fantasy baseball for a very long time like you have, and I've never done Auto New before. And so the scoring is kind of throwing me off. Not only have I not really ever done not new before obviously but points leagues in general are kind of new to me i've done them in the past but i i prefer categories but it's not new points leagues so somebody like me coming from more traditional maybe five by five rotor scoring or even other other points formats what's different about scoring here um and what are some things that players like myself need to keep in mind it's a great question and i think before I dive into a direct answer, a couple things worth calling out. One is when people move to auto new, I think one of the, the bigger issues they deal with up front rather than the scoring are around team building and how the rosters work and the salaries work and what are player values. And um, there's a bunch of things that come up with like, we have these 40 man rosters. What does that deeper roster mean for me? Um, you should probably think about that as a future auto new question of the day because you, you should be asking about that too. But from a scoring standpoint, so auto new has four scoring systems. One of them is five by five. It is traditional five by five. We're not going to talk about that right now because if you're moving from five by five to that, you already sort of know what to expect. The other is there's two point systems and there's four by four. So four by four is the original auto new format. It is a roto format with um, an analytics-friendly bent. The offensive stats are OBP, slugging, home runs, and runs. The pitching is ERA, whip, strikeouts, and home runs per nine. Um, So it's meant to get away from the stuff that analytics would tell you don't matter, like wins or saves uh, or stolen bases, and focus on the stuff that that does matter. Um, it's also a format that was first sort of created 17, 18 years ago. And so the analytics have maybe passed it by in some cases, uh, but it's a great format. It's my favorite format. Then there's the two points leagues, Fangraphs points and Sabre points. They are both linear weights based scoring systems. So linear weights, the same concept behind like WOBA that sort of tries to break apart every piece of the game to its actual value towards winning, um, took that 
type of system, assign points to everything. The big difference between Fangraph's points and Sabre points, they are exactly the same for offense. For pitching, they are a little bit different. The difference is that Fangraph's points includes hits as a negative category for pitchers. Not a negative category. You lose points if your pitcher gives up a hit. Uh, Whereas Sabre is like pure defense independent pitching like it's strikeouts it's walks it's home runs you give up a single that's not your fault and so that's the difference between those two systems if you go to autonew.fangraphs.com slash support. There's an FAQ there that includes all the scoring systems and the detailed point breakdown. So you can see there exactly what they are. I'm not going to read through all of the points for every single piece of the, the offensive settings or pitching settings. But let's get into sort of what you as a 5 by 5 player have to get ready. The league you and I are playing in is a points league. Um, it's a head-to-head points league. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between head-to-head and season long in a minute. But for points, as, as well as for 4 by 4 there's really um, a few big things on offense. One is extra base hits matter even if they're not home runs. Uh, so in you know in 5 by 5 um, a single and a double and a triple... Are, are sort of all the same thing. The double and triple maybe give you more shot at an RBI or more shot at a run. Uh, if you've got a guy who's a speed demon, those doubles might even be bad for you because you lose a, an opportunity for a stolen base. But in Fangraph's points and in 4x4, four four, because in 4x4 four four you're using slugging, in Fangraph's points you get different points for different hits, uh, they make a big difference. So here's an example of that. In 2019, Whit Merrifield had only 16 home runs, which is fine, but not really doing it for you in 5x5 very much. He also had 41 doubles and 10 triples. Well, in 5x5, those 51 extra base hits that weren't home runs don't really matter. They just they help your average. In Fangraph's points, a single ends up being worth 4.6 points, a double worth 7.5, and a triple is worth 10.3 points. Home runs are 15.6, I believe. So... Yeah, those home runs are more valuable than those doubles and triples, but those triples are more valuable than the doubles. The doubles are more valuable than the singles. And so there's a handful of players out there who get a lot of extra base hits without necessarily get hitting for a lot of power. Nick Castellano seems to have tapped into his power, but for a long time, he was a guy who hit a ton of doubles and not that many home runs. And you'd always hear in 5x5 five five people being like, yeah, I mean, he just... Those doubles don't really help you. They do in in these auto new systems, the auto new scoring system. So pay attention to that. The other is that stolen bases don't necessarily bring a ton of value. So because of the linear weight scoring, and this is, again, something that anyone who's been following analytics for a while is familiar with, uh, a caught stealing hurts more than a stolen base helps. And that's true in real baseball, and it's true here, too. A, a stolen base is worth 1.9 points. A caught stealing is worth negative 2.8. So let's go back to that 19 or that 2019 season from Whit Merrifield. He stole 20 bases. All right, 20 bases, 16 home runs. Not so bad. He was caught 10 times. So in Fangraph's points, that is 38 points gained for his 20 stolen bases and 28 points lost for his caught steals. So he gained 10 points, which is just a little bit less than one triple. And so you think, you know, 20 stolen bases, that's great, but it's all about how you steal the bases. So another example, Trey Turner, already a good hitter. He got 52.5 additional points from his stolen bases. And that's a big difference, right? That's like three or four, three, three extra home runs plus an extra single. That's a big difference over the course of a season. And so I think what the, the big thing with the scoring here is one, don't pay for speed. Like don't, I shouldn't say it, don't overpay for speed. It's like Adalberto Mondesi, super valuable in five by five, 
probably shouldn't be rostered in most Fangraphs points leagues, probably shouldn't be rostered in most 4x4 auto new leagues, because he doesn't bring anything else to the table. On the other hand, don't just completely ignore speed. You don't want to pay Trey Turner too much more for those stolen bases. But if if Turner said tomorrow, you know, if Turner tomorrow, you said, okay, I think he's going to hit three or four more home runs than he did, but he's going to stop running. That isn't like a big bump for him. And I think sometimes people think like, oh, stolen bases aren't that valuable. So three or four more home runs, that's a huge jump in value. It's not, right? For a guy who's already a good hitter, adding that stolen base value on top has some value. Just don't overpay for it. The last thing is, and actually one last thing on stolen bases, just a reminder, it's all about success rate. Because you lose so much for being caught, the thing that makes Turner exciting is not that he's going to steal 30 to 50 bases. It's that he's not going to get caught very often when he does it. And so he, he earns a lot of value that way. The last thing on the offensive side, um, all of these formats value walks. 4x4 four four uses OBP, not average. There are points for walks in both of the points formats. So lean in on OBP, not average. Again, analytics friendly, right? Focus on the stats that matter. For pitchers, the big difference, you're not getting any credit for quality starts or wins. Ks matter a lot. They're the best way for starting pitchers to accrue points is by striking out a lot of guys. You lose a lot of points for giving up home runs. So home run per nine really matters in these formats too. But guys who strike out a lot of a lot of hitters, like a guy like Scherzer, who gives up a lot of home runs, strikes out so many guys he can make up for that. And so you want high strikeout, low walk guys in these points leagues in four by four as well in the season long leagues, there's an inning pitched cap. And so what you're really looking at is how much value can I get on a per inning pitched basis? And so you don't actually care how deep guys go into games that much, right? Getting a sixth inning versus a getting six innings versus five innings out of someone. There's not a win on the line. There's not a quality start on the line. And you can make up that inning later in the season. Cause you've got, you're going to hit that cap at some point anyways, and so you really want to focus on like, I would rather take a guy who gets you more points per inning than a guy who gets you an extra inning per start in the season long leagues. Now, the league that you and I are in is a head to head league and the head to head leagues have weekly caps on games started rather than inning pitch caps. In that case, it flips it. Now, all of a sudden, what I care about is how much is a guy getting per start. And so that points per inning still matters. But you also want to look at, you know, if a guy gives you an extra inning. That can be really valuable. Um, something I wrote about a lot on, on Fangraphs last week. So if you look up my stuff on Fangraphs, you'll, you'll find a couple articles breaking down the, the difference there. Um, the one sort of, I would say, less saber-friendly thing that is in the points leagues are saves and holds for relievers. That's mostly there to create enough value for relievers for them to matter. Um, without that, those stats, they, they mean nothing. Um, I think one of the things that's, that's interesting is... Holds are worth four points. Saves are worth five. There's not a huge difference there. And so my my first instinct for a long time was like closers don't really matter because holds are just as good. If you look at the numbers, though, the top sort of seventh and eighth inning guys don't get nearly as many holds as the top closers get saves. And so there is still value in closers, but don't overvalue them. Right. Don't it, this isn't like five by five where a guy's a closer or he's not. Um, and so those those top sort of middle reliever setup guy types who who accrue a lot of holds, as well as relief pitchers who throw extra innings, um, guys who are two inning guys, three inning guys on occasion, th- those guys are really valuable. They're more valuable than you might realize at first glance. Um, but, you know, guy pitches for the Rays and they're never going to let him go a third time through the order. In a season-long league, that's totally fine. You don't need those extra innings, um, stuff like that. 
And yeah, lastly, I think just sort of general fantasy advice. We talked about it at the beginning. We'll talk about it again now. Know your format, know your league, know your those quirks. Like I said, there's a really big difference in how you value pitchers in a head-to-head Fangraphs points league versus a season-long Fangraphs points league because of the difference between an innings pitch cap and a weekly game started cap. So for you, Pete, in our head-to-head league, you want to make sure you're really paying attention to what are you going to get on a per-start basis from a pitcher rather than a per-inning basis from a pitcher. Those are obviously related, but if you get guys who go deeper into games, those extra innings are basically bonus points for you because you don't get to make them up later in the season. Whereas in a season-long league with an inning pitch cap, you can make those up later by using a different pitcher. So, Chad, then if I'm hearing this correctly, it sounds like to me relievers, particularly closers, are going to be more important in a league like ours where it's weekly as opposed to season long because you're capped on how much your starters can give you literally by a game started cap. So those extra innings that you get from those relievers are more important on a week-by-week basis. Yeah, I think that's true. In those head-to-head leagues, um, relief innings are super useful. And so you like I said, you're not capped on them. And so there's a, there's a few things you can do with that. One is you want to make sure you have enough relievers on your roster to be rotating guys in and out so that, you know, you got a guy who's gone the last two days, get him onto your bench, get, make sure you have somebody else to get in there because you want to maximize those innings. The other is multi-inning guys are really valuable. Um, followers. Uh, I've, I have found this to be a really difficult strategy to enact, but if you know the pitchers who are going to be used as followers, followers are gold because they can throw five mediocre innings and it's all bonus for you because they don't count as a game started and there's no cap on your innings pitched in those formats. Whereas in season long leagues, followers, if they're not good, they're still not good. Um, Conversely, in head-to-head leagues, openers are worthless. Do not ever use an opener in our head-to-head league. You you will regret it because he could throw one brilliant inning and he's going to get you 10 or 12 points. And some other pitcher who you could have used for six crappy innings will get you more than 10 or 12 points. So you don't want to use openers, but followers are really valuable. Multi-inning relievers are really valuable. Um, And making sure... Again, this is for those head-to-head leagues, making sure you use guys, you have those relief spots filled every day. In the season-long leagues, relievers still, so on a per-inning basis, you know, your top relievers could get anywhere from 8 to 10 points per inning. Your top starting pitchers are going to be capped out closer to 6. And so there is still real value in maximizing how much relief pitching you get in those season-long leagues. But you have to balance a little bit, right? Uh, you know, using a follower as a reliever in a season-long league can be good. But if that follower is only getting you four points per inning, they're no better than using a good starter. And so, whereas in a head-to-head league, they're they're just super valuable. So, season-long, you still want to max out those relief innings, but in head-to-head, they can be a game-changer. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, as the guy, I rostered both Rezil Iglesias, and I was receiving offers for Amir Garrett. So, when you start, I was a little surprised. I was like, oh, I probably should have traded Amir Garrett, even though I got a pretty nice value on him. But now I'm thinking... You know, I'm actually kind of kind of glad I have those relievers, and particularly this year, right? Where I don't know how deep into games a lot of starters are going to be going. Who knows how many 200 inning pitch starting pitchers we're going to have if we get any, right? Um, so all all good stuff, Chad. As usual, you did not disappoint for the Pete. Please help me question of the day. <laughs> happy to help. Uh, I'm I'm always happy to talk out new, which is a a good reminder. Um, we are always happy to talk fantasy baseball in general, and you can find us on Twitter. You can find me at Chad Young. Pete is at Pete 
B Baseball at Pete B Baseball. And you can find both of us at Keep or Cut, Cut with a K. You can subscribe to the Keeper Cut podcast, Apple, Spotify, Google, all those places. So subscribe, listen, send us questions, engage with us on Twitter. We are happy to talk auto new, happy to talk about your keeper decisions, happy to help you figure out who you're going to draft, whatever we can do. Um, We are excited to be here, excited to keep this thing going, and we'll be back with the third episode in about a week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Take it easy.